Well, as you're taking your seat, let me invite you to also grab your Bibles and turn them open to Revelation chapter 21, to the passage that was just read for us a moment ago. I showed up this morning and one guy asked well, well, if I went into Bryant's closet, because apparently I'm a little more spiffy today than normal. Uh, I don't know if I should have been insulted that I had to go into somebody else's closet or the assumption that I had to go into somebody else's closet to find, to find something like this to wear. But uh, I'm so excited to be sharing this moment with you and to be focusing on what we're focusing on this morning as we consider the world that is to come, the hope that we have because of the resurrected Jesus, all that he accomplished for us and promises to be in and do for us as his people journeying through this world. Um, one of my favorite books uh, is, uh, comes as no surprise to many of you, but uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, written by J.R.R. Tolkien. And if you've seen the movie, if you've read the books, it's an epic tale of these hobbit creatures, these unlikely candidates for heroism being called and selected to accomplish something significant. Uh, they were one in particular named Frodo is tasked with being the ring bearer. And the goal of the story is for him to take this ring of power that is wreaking so much havoc in Middle Earth and destroy it in the fires of Mount Doom. And, and so he sets out on this journey. But the cool thing about Frodo going on that journey is he didn't go by himself. Uh, some, he was accompanied by some friends. And perhaps one character, he's my favorite character in the whole trilogy. And Tolkien actually says this guy's the real hero of the story. And that's the hobbit known as Samwise Gamgee. Now, Samwise was Frodo's best friend, and he's so valuable to the story because he's the guy who always uh, found the silver lining in everything. He was the hopeful one. He was the encouraging one. He was the one that would press Frodo on in this difficult journey. And, but even Sam, as faithful and as enduring as he is and as he was in the story, there were moments even in his own journey where he was tempted to give up, tempted to call it quits, tempted to fold into the to the power of darkness that was encompassing Middle Earth at that time. But, and there was one moment in the story where Sam and Frodo were in, they, they basically hit their lowest point and they're wondering if they can go any further. And in that moment, Sam looks up and he sees a star in the sky. And when he looks up and he sees this star shining in the midst of so much darkness, this is what happened to him. Tolkien writes, the beauty of that star struck Sam's heart. And hope returned like a shaft, cold and clear. The thought pierced him that the shadow of evil in the long run was a passing thing. And there was light and high beauty forever beyond the reach of darkness. Don't you love that? Light and high beauty forever beyond the reach of darkness. And as that star rekindled Sam's hope, my goal and my desire this morning is for you and I to look to our light to look to our high beauty that exists forever beyond the reach of darkness and consider how the resurrected Christ rekindles ours, how the resurrected Christ causes hope to arise within us and cause hope to flow through us as we interact with a difficult world, as we live in a world that is challenging, where there's so much stuff in it that seems to contradict and does contradict the character of God and his desires for his people. I want us to look and see the light and high beauty that forever exists beyond the reach of darkness. Let's consider the resurrected Jesus and all that comes by putting our faith in him. 
And so to do that, we're going to step into this passage in Revelation chapter 21. And if you heard that announced this morning and you have any exposure to the Bible or Christianity, maybe you thought, oh, this should be interesting. We're getting into Revelation. Revelation is kind of that dramatic book of the Bible that people love to study and they love to read it in ways to try to predict what's going to happen in the future. Unfortunately, Revelation is one of those books that is perhaps mostly you, most uh, is used and abused perhaps more so than many other books in the Bible. It's a difficult book to interpret and apply at times. And because of that, you get a lot of craziness when people step into the book of Revelation. And whatever your assumption is about this book coming in today, uh, I do want to kind of dispel one myth, and that is the book of Revelation uh, God did not give us this book to provide inspiration for the best-selling novels, the Left Behind series. That's not why this book was given to us. Nor was this book given to us to provide fodder for the Discovery Channel or for the History Channel to do documentaries and specials on, really zeroing in on some of the imagery of Revelation that can, if you're like me and have a, my, my imagination as a kid, whenever I saw some of those things, it just kept me up at night. It was a fear-inducing book, not necessarily a hope-inducing book, but if you and I consider this book together this morning, and specifically the passage we're looking at today, we're going to zero in on the real purpose why this book was given to the church. You see, the book of Revelation was written to provide real people with real problems, real hope. The book of Revelation was written to encourage disciples, followers of Jesus, who were enduring persecution because they were worshiping Jesus as God, because they were entrusting Jesus with their lives, because they were they were embracing an ethic that seemed to run against the grain of their culture and their society. And because of that, that introduced problems into their lives as they were pushed to the fringes, as they were pressed down and persecuted in a myriad of ways. And then God gave this vision to his apostle, this guy named John, a picture of this world that is to come. And he gave him this vision to instill hope within him. And he receives this vision. He writes it down to instill hope within every disciple, within every follower of Jesus. That no matter how hard life gets, no matter how challenging this world can be, there is a light and high beauty that forever exists beyond the reach of darkness. We have a hope that is unshakable. We have a hope that is irrevocable. And this is what Revelation 21 is cueing us into. But if you notice, when you step into the passage, this passage given to give real people with real problems, real hope, he does so, he approaches it in a way that, that by calling our attention most immediately in verses one through four to this new heaven and this new earth. And he, it's as though God is telling John and John is telling us that that hope will arise in our hearts when we focus on this world that is to come, this new world that is described in the first four verses of this chapter. Now, when you think about the nature of this new world that is coming, this world that will one day be realized, this new heaven, new earth, it's very important that we understand what that word new means. Because there were two words John could have selected to use in this passage to describe this new world. One of those words is a word, uh, it's a Greek term, neos. And this is a word that speaks to new as in young, new as in fresh. This is a word that you would use to describe the fruit that you bought yesterday at the grocery store. It is new, it is fresh. But it's also the word you would use to point out the reality that that fruit's not going to last forever. That that fruit's going to 
decay. And if you got that fruit from Trader, Trader Joe's, it's probably already decayed. That stuff goes quick. It, it's new, it's fresh, it's young, but that type of newness doesn't last forever. You might say, well, I bought a new pair of shoes and those shoes are new to you. They've never been worn. They've never been touched, but you put them on your feet, you start walking around, time goes by, and those shoes will start looking worn. They will deteriorate. They will decay. That's one way that you and I can think about this word new. But what's interesting about this passage is that that's not the word John chooses to describe the world that is to come. Instead of selecting the word naos that refers to something new, fresh, but that can decay or deteriorate or fall apart, he selects a word called kainos. And kainos is a word translated new that speaks to quality. It speaks to duration. And what he's driving home in this text is that there is coming a world that far surpasses the quality of this one. A new world that will not be subject to the decay that our current world is subjected to. And we all know this decaying effect that life in this world can have on us. There's a reason why we need medicine. There's a reason why we need cosmetics. There is a reason why we need scientific discoveries. All of those aspects to life in this world are designed to help you and I just kind of put the brakes on the decaying process. We're all in search for a fountain of youth. We're all in search for a life that will last. But the challenge of this text is if your search for life, if your search for existence and durability and a quality of life is attached to this world, then your search will never be fulfilled. But the good news of this passage is that there is coming a world, there is coming a new reality that Jesus will usher in that is far surpasses the quality of this world, a new heaven and a new earth that will not deteriorate, that will not decay, that it's not subjected to entropy like our lives and world is today. This is our light and high beauty, this reality that Jesus is bringing in It's one of those things, when you look at this passage and you see how John describes it, he uses different kinds of metaphors. And if you're into books and literature and writing, you know that if you are a writer, you don't mix your metaphors. Mixing metaphors is a bad thing to do. But sometimes you have no choice. You have to mix your metaphors because you're trying to say something so grand that one metaphor just can't do it. And so you look at this passage and you see several metaphors just kind of mixed and mingled together. He talks about a new heaven and a new earth. He talks about a holy city. He even talks about a bride. He uses all these metaphors conveying the same reality, trying to get after this world that is to come, this hope that we have in an enduring world, this hope that we have in a new heaven and a new earth. And it's so remarkable that you and I, if we ever try to describe this, we're going to be we're going to come up short. We're not going to do justice when it comes to describing the world that will come one day. And so what we tend to do when we have a hard time describing something, we, we move away from positives and we use the negatives. That tends to be the only way we can describe things that are in some ways indescribable. And so you think about the nature of the world that is to come. And if I'm going to describe it to you, I have to start with the negatives. This world that is to come, understand that this world will be a world without sin. 
You want to know what this new world will be like. It will not be subject to decay. It will not be subject to entropy. It will not be subject to death because this world will be without sin. I mean, can you imagine an existence where there's no pride and arrogance? Can you imagine a world where there is no narcissism? Can you imagine a world where there's no prejudice? Can you imagine a world where there's no injustice or oppression? A world without sin. This is what John is, being, is getting a vision of in this passage, and it's what's being relayed in this passage to us today. A world without sin. It is a holy city, according to John. And that word holy, of course, is one of the most common designations of the character of God. And what he's saying is that this world that is to come will be a world without sin. It is a world that will be holy, pure, righteous, perfect. It is a world that will harmonize with the character of God. Everything will exist in harmony and there will be no sin in the world that is to come. But not only does he describe it as a, as a holy city or a world without sin, he also says, get this. The world that is to come will be a place without suffering. A place without suffering. He describes God as wiping away every tear from our eyes. He describes there being no pain, no suffering. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a world without cancer? Can you imagine a world without car wrecks? Can you imagine a world without arthritis? Can you imagine a world without Alzheimer's? Can you imagine a world without suffering? This is precisely what John is describing and laying out for you and I to consider today. A world without sin, a world without suffering. And if you have a world without sin and a world without suffering, then you have a world that will not deteriorate, a world that will not decay, a world that will not be characterized by death. Death in this world that is to come will be no more. It is a world without sin. It is a world without suffering. It is a world you and I want to look forward to. But there's another dynamic to this passage of what John's describing. Not only does he describe it as a holy world, a new world without sin, and a, a new world without suffering, he also says that this world, if you notice in verse 2, it says this new heaven and this new earth is coming down. That heaven is coming to us. And that might flip the script on some of your assumptions about heaven. Because maybe you've walked into this room and you have some ideas about heaven. And maybe your assumption about heaven is that one day your spirit will detach itself from your body and you will float up into some ethereal existence. There's a reason why heaven seems boring to many kids. There's a reason why heaven seems boring to some of us today. is because sometimes we project an image of heaven that is no more glamorous and no more glorious than a fat angel playing a harp on a pillow of a cloud. But nothing could be further from the truth. There's no wonder we, want, we don't want to go there. We just want to make the most of the life that we have in this world because that seems so dull. That seems so unattractive. But notice what John is saying. He's saying there's coming a day when heaven is going to come down. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. It's moving in our direction. And what that means for you and I, and it's the reality of the resurrection that we're celebrating today, is that this new world will be a physical world. It will be a physical environment in which we will live, in which we will laugh, in which we will run, in which we will play, in which we will engage God in a physical dimension. And I can prove it to you. This will be a physical world, just as physical as Jesus's body was when he stepped out of the tomb. 
you know as well as I do, if you are a follower of Jesus, that when Jesus rose from the grave, he did so physically. He did so bodily. And the New Testament describes his resurrection as the first installment of the world that is to come. And so if Jesus' body is a physical body, if it is a new body, if it is a glorified body, where he's doing things, you're wondering, well, what in the world? Like, there's a moment in the Gospels where Jesus shows up in a locked room. He shows up in this room. His disciples are dumbfounded. Well, how did you get in? The door was locked. And he shows up, but then to prove that he wasn't some ethereal spirit or a ghost, he says, okay, now give me some fish. And so after showing up in this room, he then eats a meal with the disciples to show that his body is a physical body. His body is a real body. His body is a new body. And his body, the New Testament would teach, is a, is a foretaste, it is an appetizer of what all of us will one day experience in the world that is to come. That heaven will be a physical place. The new heaven and the new earth will be a physical world. And we will enjoy that world together in glorified, resurrected bodies. This reminds us that our God, the God that we're singing to and worshiping today, is a God who cares about the course of this world. He cares about physicality. He doesn't, he's not a God who just wants us, like if you've ever seen on The Simpsons, where the, the body just kind of unzips and falls to the ground and the spirit floats up to heaven. That is not the hope of the gospel. That's not the hope of our faith. That's not the hope that's rising within us. We are looking forward to a world that will be without sin, that will be without suffering, and it is a world where you and I will physically engage. It is a world where we will eat and drink, laugh and play. It is a world that will not be subjected to entropy or anything else that makes life so miserable in the here and now. John says it's a new world, qualitatively superior to the world that is, and this world is coming down. So God's not just redeeming souls, he's redeeming bodies. And this new world will be a place where we hug and dance and eat and drink. We're going to share life together then. I can't tell you how good this is when I think about my father-in-law. My father-in-law's name was named Carl, and about seven years ago, he passed away. But before he died, he had a battle with diabetes, and diabetes just took its toll on his body. So that by the time everything was done, he could barely see, he could barely hear, he couldn't get out physically, didn't have a lot of energy. Things were just taking its toll on him. But he's also a man who had faith in this resurrected Jesus. He's also a man who was trusting in the gospel. He's also a man who I know one day I'm going to see him do things that I've never seen him do. That one day I'm going to see him in his glorified resurrected body and he's going to be present with me and others in heaven and he's going to do things I've never seen him do. He's going to run. He's going to leap. He's going to laugh. He's going to have vision. He's going to have hearing. He will be renewed in the world that is to come and that's the world I'm looking forward to. That's a world that says there is a light and high beauty that forever exists the reach of darkness. That is a reality that no experience in this world can dampen or deaden. It is a reality that is eternally fixed because Jesus is risen. And so I look towards that day. I look forward to seeing my father-in-law doing things I've never seen him do. This was a woman by the name of Joni Erickson Tata, if you've heard her name. She's a woman who about 40 years ago, she 
became a quadriplegic after, she, after a diving accident. And she spent the rest of her life, and she's still alive today, writing books, helping people find hope in the gospel, reminding others of this reality, of this world that is to come. And there's one moment where she makes this statement in one of her books. She says, I have hope in the future. The Bible speaks about bodies being glorified. I know the meaning of that now. It's the time after my death here when I, the quadriplegic, will be on my feet dancing. This world that is to come will be a new world. It is one that we look forward to for all of those reasons. No sin, no suffering, a physical existence that we're enjoying forever and ever and ever. And I don't know what that does for you. I don't know if that excites you. That might, you might just hear that and be like, yeah, whatever. I'm not all that into it. But if it does excite you, let me assure you that there's, it gets even better. Because as good as those things are, as good as it is to be in a world where there is no sin and as good as it is to be in a world where there's no suffering and as good as it is that it'll be a physical world, not entirely unlike the one that we're in now, as good as that is, that's not even the best part. The best part of this new heaven and this new earth is found in verse 3 where we are told that God is going to dwell with his people and we are going to dwell with him. There's coming a moment where you and I are going to enjoy the presence of God in a way that cannot be sullied by anything else. Our enjoyment of God today and in this world is so oftentimes dampened by sin in our life or dampened by sin in the world or dampened by sufferings in our life. But understand what John is pointing out. There's coming a day when we will dwell with God and he will dwell with us and there will be nothing hindering our enjoyment of him. That's the best part of heaven. And that's important for us to consider when you look back at the text and you see that there are, there's this emphasis on a wedding ceremony. One of the metaphors used is the image of a bride. And it's an image that was introduced in the previous chapter, in Revelation chapter 19. This moment where, where we're told about this marriage supper of the Lamb. If you turn back one page in your Bible, get into verse 6. Listen to what's being described, uh, echoing again what we see in Revelation 21. It says, Then I, referring to John, heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This wedding imagery, this marriage imagery, conveying the reality that we're gonna dwell with God and he with us. We will be with him forever. That's the day that we're looking forward to, and that's the reality that really drives our hope. Yes, heaven's going to be a great place. But even better than that great place, we're going to dwell with a great person. We're going to be with our God. Now, I've been married for, I don't know, 10 or 11 years now. Kim can correct, correct me. In the, I'm terrible with numbers. I was an English major. So uh, we've been married for a little while now. And, and imagine on the day of our wedding. A lot went into getting ready for that ceremony because we live in a culture that puts more emphasis on the ceremony than the marriage. And there's this, this way we are. And so we put a lot of money into it, a lot of planning into it, a lot of energy in making that moment 
special and important. Imagine somebody comes up to me and asks me, hey, Andrew, how, what, are you, what are you looking forward to today? Are you excited? It's your wedding day. What if I looked at them? I said, I know, I can't wait to see the flowers in the sanctuary. Or if I look at them and I say, I know, I can't wait to hear the music that will be played. Or I can't wait to enjoy the feast that we will enjoy after the ceremony. And I pointed out all the good things that will go into that day. And the one thing I neglect, the one thing I forget is the reality that that day represents I will be united with my bride. If I said that, you would look at me and be like, man, you've missed it. You've missed it bad. You, you, you are overlooking what matters most. See, those other things are good and they should be celebrated and enjoyed, but they're not the great point and purpose of that moment. The good, the great thing of that moment is that I will be united or I was united with my bride. Well, when it comes to you and I thinking about the world that is to come, let's, let's think about what the Bible says heaven will be like. Let's think about what the Bible says there's about the new heavens and the new earth, but let's not camp there as if that's the point. The point isn't simply to step into a world where there is no sin or no suffering, a physical world. The point is for the people of God to step into the presence of God where the presence of God can be enjoyed forever and ever and ever. I've been talking to people over the past couple of weeks. I've been asked the question, Why, what's the big deal about Jesus? Can't I just be a good person? I don't need Jesus. I'm just going to be a good person, live my life. I don't really need him. And in each one of those conversations, uh, as compassionately as I can, I've looked at the other person and I've said, if that's your perspective, if that's your thought, if you want to be a good person without Jesus, you're missing the point. You're missing the point of your very existence. God did not create you to be a good person. God created you to enjoy fellowship with Jesus. I would rather be a bad person with Jesus than a good person without him. This is the goal of our gospel, that we will enjoy the presence of Jesus. And yes, we get glimpses of that now. We can taste some of that now as we put our faith in Jesus. But for everything to come to its consummated end, there's this moment where we're going to step into the presence of Jesus, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the point of our very existence, and we're going to enjoy him forever. The goal of the gospel is to bring us into the presence of God. The goal of the gospel is to change our lives in the context of a relationship with God, and that relationship begins now, and that relationship extends into eternity when the world that is to come is fully made known and brought into the world that is. So let me ask you, is your goal in life to be a good person? If your goal in life is to be a good person, you're selling yourself short. You're subscribing to a purpose that is far beneath you. The goal of your life is not to be a good person. The goal of your life is not to be unlike those described in verse 8. There are many people who don't fall in those categories, right? Well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a sorcerer. I'm not a liar. And you might describe yourselves in those negative terms. But if you only describe yourselves by what you're not, then you're missing the point. The goal is not to not be like those types of people. The goal is to step into a relationship with the crucified and risen Jesus. 
And if you don't want Jesus now, you won't get him then. But if you want Jesus now, you will enjoy him then and always. That's the goal of the gospel. Don't simply subscribe to being a good person. Don't get religious or get church so that you can become moral. If you do, you're selling yourself short. There's something far greater for you to live into, something far greater for you to lean into. And that which you are living for and leaning into concerns a relationship with God through the crucified and risen Jesus. And that relationship starts now. And it is that relationship that can bring you hope even when everything else seems dark. There's a move as you move out of verse 4 and into verse 5 where John's no longer focusing on the future world and he focuses on what's going on right now. And he reminds us of this present experience we can have with Jesus where Jesus says, behold, I am in the process. I am making all things new. Understand that that work is your heart. That work is your life. That work is the change and transformation that you are undergoing now because you've put your faith in Jesus, because you've come to him as you're beckoned to in verse 6, and you say, I I am thirsty. And then Jesus gives you freely without payment or price, understanding that God's grace is awarded to you through Jesus. So you come to him now. And he begins this work of transformation where you are getting to know him and you are finding joy in him. And and you'll discover over the course of time that joy and that relationship growing exponentially, multiplying in depth, multiplying in width, and ultimately coming to its full consummation in the world that is to come. So the goal of the gospel isn't so much to get you into heaven someplace. The goal of the gospel is to get you into relationship with Jesus. And when you find his present real-time work arising in your life, you will find yourself living the kind of life that contradicts the decaying world around you. It is possible for you and I to live a life that contradicts the decay of this world. I've seen this in my mother. My mother was diagnosed with breast cancer and she had to undergo treatment. And when she did, her body started to deteriorate. Even the remedy to her cancer was destroying her body in other ways. It wasn't a good time. It was a hard time. It was a suffering time. There were a lot of tears being shed over the course of that time. And as her body began to deteriorate, something strange began to happen. As her body began to deteriorate, you began to sense something in my mother growing. You begin to sense hope rising within her because as her body was decaying, she found herself pressing into Jesus in prayer and in the Bible. And she began to think about Jesus and talk about Jesus. She began to put her faith in Jesus. And although her body was wasting away, there was a renewing work happening within her soul as she began to grow spiritually. And there's coming a day when that spiritual growth will match her external growth when Jesus returns and he gives all of his people who have suffered and struggled in this world a new body. And you find that new body being hammered out under what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this weight of glory. He would even say, I'll just read the text to you, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In light of these realities, we do not lose heart, no matter how hard life gets in this world. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're new in a deteriorating sense. They're going to 
pass away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we fix our eyes on that which is unseen. We're trusting in the crucified and risen Jesus. And when we do and as we do, that future hope begins to break into our present hurts. That future hope begins to bring endurance into our lives so that we become the type of person who's described in verse 7 as the one who conquers. The one who conquers is the one who will step into this reality and enjoy this God forever. It is the one who conquers. But the question I have for you is how do you conquer? What does it mean to conquer? Well, it doesn't mean that you become the opposite of that which is described in verse 8. It doesn't mean you simply become the opposite of that which is described there apart from Jesus. When John talks about conquering in this passage, and when he talks about conquering elsewhere, he's talking about a conquering, an endurance that comes through faith. He's saying the one who conquers is the one who bring, comes to Jesus and doesn't bring their good deeds or doesn't bring their righteous works or doesn't bring even the things that they're not. They don't come to Jesus and say, well, I'm not a murderer or a liar. No, the one who conquers is the one who comes to Jesus and says, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. The one who conquers is the one who brings need to Jesus. You see, in order for this hope to rise in your heart, all you need is your need. In order for this hope to rise in your heart, you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm thirsty. Give me grace. And you will find Jesus moving towards you and moving in you and moving through you in ways that you never thought possible. Giving you a hope that can shine no matter how hard life gets as your inner nature is being renewed, even though your external nature may be wasting away. That's what's taking place now. So we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm thirsty. I need you. Give me what I'm lacking. And if you're not yet someone who's doing that, let me encourage you to do that. Come to Jesus. Don't bring him your good works. Don't bring him your sense of righteousness. Don't bring him even your desires to be a good person. Bring him your thirst. Come to him and say, I am empty and hopeless without you. Would you fill me up? And you're going to find Jesus responding to that prayer in a way that isn't tied to your merit. And it isn't tied to your works. You're going to find Jesus responding to that prayer in a way that flows from his grace. Saying, I will give to those who are thirsty. And it's water that they don't have to buy. Price that they didn't pay. I'm going to give to them. This is exactly what Jesus told a woman at a well in John chapter 4. This woman at the well who meets Jesus in this hot, at the height of day, in a hot day, and she's thirsty. She wants some water. Jesus comes up to her, and he knows she's thirsty. And he knows that she's thirsty, not just for the physical water in the well. She's thirsty for the spiritual water that he's there to give. And we know this because Jesus would actually point out the fact that she has been seeking to satisfy her thirst in all time types of promiscuous relationships. She was a woman who was known to be sleeping around and pursuing uh, some type of intimacy and acceptance in the arms of many lovers. Jesus knew this about her, so he approaches her by the well and engages her in conversation. He brings that to light, but then listen to what he says to, listen to, what he says to that woman. In John chapter 4, he would respond to her with these words. 
everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring welling up to eternal life. Do you hear where hope rises from? Hope rises not by seeking life in the things that are transient in this world, whether it's sin or any other situation. Hope rises when we come to Jesus and we drink. Hope rises when we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I'm thirsty. Hope rises when Jesus answers that prayer saying, I will give you what you need. I will be for you what you need. I will assure you of an existence that extends far beyond this current world. That my death and resurrection is going to bring in a new heaven and a new earth. The world that is will pass away, but the world that I bring will last forever. So we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I'm thirsty. Jesus, I need you. And as you do, you will find him pouring water into your soul, causing hope to rise as you look towards the world that is to come and all the things that we can anticipate enjoying. But you look most importantly at the fact that when that world comes, we're going to be with this Jesus forever and ever. That's the hope of our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that if there is any hopeless person in this room today, I ask that you would allow your grace to abound in their lives, that you would bring them to a point where they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm thirsty. Jesus, I need you. And I pray, Jesus, that as that prayer is prayed, that you would hear it and that you would respond to it, that you would bring satisfaction to souls and hope to hearts, that you would give us grace to look forward to the world that is to come. A world without sin, suffering, a world that we can enjoy physically, but most importantly, a world where we will be with you. And I pray that as we trust in that reality, that hope would rise, that hope would rise in Jesus' name. Amen.